Welcome to The Prestige, a podcast all about films, filmmakers, film theory and film discussions. Each week we take a film, we talk about its history, what we thought of it and some of the themes and ideas that it throws up. And as always we end the show with our recommendations for further watching if you like this one. But as always we start with a discussion on what else we've been watching in, in the last week. So Sam, what else have you been watching since our article? I'm trying to think. I've watched a couple of things. We went to the cinema, which does not happen very often and will soon be happening even less. Um, and I saw um, Spider-Man Homecoming, which is... Oh, yeah. it, it was it was very enjoyable. It, um, it has a nice twist at the beginning of the third act when you're just feeling a bit tired with the whole superhero film thing and you think oh yeah that, that was a good one um, I it was a little bit long that's my complaint with every superhero movie ever um, but in general yeah it was, it was enjoyable fun good good I haven't seen it myself but I do hear good things about about it certainly I wouldn't say it's, it's groundbreaking but it's it's certainly a, a good piece of work oh brilliant brilliant I also have, in many ways, I don't know if you see. I don't know if you call it a superhero film, but it's certainly in that genre. Um, so Sarah and I this weekend rewatched Guardians of the Galaxy two. All right. Now, obviously, it's a Marvel film. It's within within the, the MCU, so it kind of falls into the superhero genre, but it it doesn't feel like a superhero film. Mm. Um, if anything, it's close to like a space adventure film. Uh, in many ways, it's near to genetic rival things like Firefly and uh, Serenity. But we rewatched yeah. that, and while I don't think it has the same magic as the original, um, I do think that the actors have clearly fallen into their uh, into their roles and are much sort of happy and much more content in in what they're doing. So personally, I, I very much enjoy it. Um, and if it, I don't think it's as good as the uh, the first, but uh, it certainly is worth your time. I can't recall what you thought of it when we saw it. Oh, I did enjoy it. I would well, like you. I didn't think it was as good as the first, but I wonder whether the first was so impressive because it was so out of the blue, mm. and two therefore wasn't so impressive because you kind of had high expectations of it. I had such low expectations of like. A, I mean, it was a Marvel property, but it was a nothing, and nobody knew anything about it, and mm. it was. It was just out of nowhere the 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 first film, so I do wonder if you saw the second film in a vacuum, what it would be like. No, I I agree. I think it, it's a it's like a lot of them. I mean, the original Iron Man kind of came in with limitations, mm. um, and it hasn't. I don't think it's quite matched that since. No. Um, but yeah, we watched that, and I still enjoyed it. Good. Right. Well, our latest film in the. Um, director series that we're on at the moment, the Akira Kurosawa season, is his nineteen fifty film Rashomon.
If Jonathan Angel was Kurosawa's first film, then Rashomon from 1950 is generally seen as his breakout movie. It again stars Toshiro Mifune, who was Matsunaga in the first film, and it tells a story of a fairly heinous crime from a number of different viewpoints. And I suppose that's a technique that's quite familiar nowadays, but which was, I believe, and I will defer to Rob here, but I think cinematically it was fairly new at the time. It certainly didn't have the the, the wide sort of exposure it has now, certainly. No. No. So, Rob, what are your thoughts on Rashomon? I I, I like it. (laughs) I I, I mean, the fact that I'm a bit of a a Kurosawa fanboy is certainly going to come out over the next, next few weeks. But I do think this is a bit of masterful cinema. I think that it, it's very interesting in that you don't have a clear narrative, and in often with films these days, you see you, you get tied into these story arcs in which people learn things and move on, and they overcome their fears and the hero's journey and return to the source and all these kind of traditional story structures, and none of those apply to this film this isn't this isn't a story we're being told this is an experience we're having whilst at the same time it very much is a story we're being told um and i'll get into that down the line the levels of story that we're, we're seeing here is a um a thing to discuss but i like it i think the acting is brilliant i really enjoy the concept of the film i think that the, the idea that you have these three stories um, that may even turn out to be for spoilers, four stories shall we say and you have to kind of navigate a truth through them and a story that, that may be the real story or may not be the real story um, that and I, I like the look of it I think it's a wonderfully shot film uh, I enjoy the way that each three story is shot differently and you can see the nature of the um, of the stories expressed in the camera work and the visual symbolism in those is something that is it's there but isn't overpowering and so yeah i really enjoy it sam your thoughts yes um i really enjoyed this film the extent to which i enjoy a film and the number of notes i make on it are directly proportional and i made a lot of notes on this film although rob and i were discussing before we came on air that um it's possibly productive of an engrossing film where you don't really concentrate on what you're writing, but it, it sometimes these notes make no sense. <laughs> um, so I had lots of interesting notes about this film, but I really enjoyed it. Um, I am waiting to be told more about its visual stylings because I couldn't quite get a handle on why I enjoyed it so much, but I definitely did. Um, the acting performances are great it was the first line I can't understand it is brilliant and it makes me want to watch the film Mm. Um, and I'm not often pulled into a film like that by the script Um, but yeah as I said it'd be I mean interesting hearing from you about the the visual motifs of this so well, what were I you mean, saying about the different different uh, so, stories? I mean, we'll get into some of the narrative ideas later on, um, but at a purely technical and visual level, we discussed last week uh, Kurosawa's filmmaking style, 
um, and how he shot things. And I think he used it great there because you have the three stories: you have the the bandit story, you have the wife story, you have the samurai himself story, I suppose, and then the woodcut story. Mm. If you watch it back, the bandit story, when it's he's the one telling it. It's very fast-paced. It's very cut. It's not whip pans, but it's all very kind of high-energy editing and energy, which is his style. Mm. If you contrast that with the story from the samurai's point of view, who is much more sedate, much more placid as a character and as a story being told, um, the camera reflects that. You don't have many pans. You have much more locked-off shots. And then you've got the woodcutter, and the woodcutter scenes, uh, there's a great technique that Kurosawa uses um, in which he can th- get three shots out of one, if you see what I'm saying. So he starts in a wide shot, the cappers moves towards it, and the camera moves towards it, and you're suddenly getting a close-up. And then they move on into the next scene, and you get back to a wide shot. So you manage to get this camera movement to produce three separate framings, clear framings, rather mm. than the modern style of lots of movement. And you've got a lot of that in the woodcutter because he's a character that moves. He's all he starts his story walking through the forests, and he's always moving. You don't have the same sort of calmness you do with samurai, and they're all there in those stories. Now, none of them are, you know, bashing you in the face. We've all seen films, things like um, Traffic from the early early two thousands, I think it was, where each section of that was shot very differently, and it's hammered into your face. These are different stories, different things going on. Um, here it's very subtle but it is there you get a very different sort of emotional vibe from the framing and the editing choices of each section that... I, I was thinking the only, the only thing that the only time that that came to mind was at, right at the very end in the fight and I thought that was a point that I thought well there was something about the framing that I've missed here and I would need to go back and watch it but it was the um, the circling and the viewpoints change, and also there's one point where sort of a blade emerges from each side of the screen, and suddenly you have the meeting in in a shot, mm. and that's the only time you you see them come together in this exchange. And I think that there's 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 lots of that kind of framing to stuff in that kind of way. Um, the other thing is is that there's a, and this is where we get into sort of more the film theory territory. There's a reoccurring motif um, of this shot, and part of it's how it was shot and framed, of we are almost always seeing these stories through things. Right. So the, if we take them in, in, in terms of sort of nested narratives, we've got the first nesting, which is the, the, the Rushmore Gate itself. We see that entire story through the lens of rain. There is this driving rain all over the um, shots. So mm. we're always seeing it through them. The next level down we've got the police station where you've got a very, very ordered frame. You know, it's harsh, white, straight lines. It's a much more ordered experience. And then we go another layer down into the forest to glade itself and there's reoccurring shots and the reoccurring narrative of sunlight through trees and dappled light. And this idea that the obscured light and our obscured vision is this sort of metaphorical link to the obscuring of the truth that we're seeing. That everything we're experiencing is clouded in some manner, be it by prejudice, by lies, or just visually obscured. And that we're always left with the idea that we're, we, we know we're only seeing part of what's going on, be it visually and narratively. Hmm. 
So that, that does lead me to one of the points that I wanted to talk about in terms of narrative, is that this didn't occur to me probably until a good hour after watching it. And that is the story that's being told and who's telling it. So the stories we're hearing are these, um, the three events in the forest, the events in the forest are being told from three points of view. Um, the, the, the wife, the bandit and the samurai. And that was how I was in my head was picturing and viewing this film. Till I realised that that isn't true. We're being told these stories by the priest and the woodcutter at the gate. Mm. So it's not like we can say, well, the samurai thought this. Well, he may have thought that. But we're, we're still one removed from that narrative. We're still, it's, a, it's a person telling a story of telling a story. And this gets back to what you were saying about frames and obscuring things, seeing things through things. And like you say, it starts off with the motif of the gate. But that's, that visual motif is enacted in the story itself. Because like you said, it's a story within a story. Mm. It's someone else's version of someone's version. Uh, and that's that's interesting. I was... I was um, I was trying to find more about the word Rashomon, um, and I wondered about it, and and then came up against this. Well, it's essentially just taken. It's a corruption of Rajamon. This the description of that big gate at the beginning. It's it's castle wall gate, and and I wondered why he called this film that. And maybe that gets to it. This gets to what Kira Kurosawa is trying to say, that this is a film about framing, about seeing things, like you said, through that motif of the gate, through the gate at the mm. beginning. This is a film about framing. This is a film about stories within stories. Yeah, I think, and it's interesting that... We, that I think it's interesting that the... Aside on top of the name situation, you've got the location of, of the city gates. The city gates are part of the city but not part of the inside city but outside the city mm. and a it's in ruins the civilization is breaking down and that's mirrored from the story itself to the relationship to the um buildings but also as you say it's it's kind of a bit of both you know and the idea that the things that we hold true be it civilization or truth are falling apart in this world and are being you know bent bent and just used for other people's needs Hmm. And you have um you said there's the priest, the woodcutter, who's the other one? Uh just a local peasant. Yeah, okay, local peasant. You you have him um actually tearing down the gate mm. and using the gate presumably tearing the gate down for firewood, but you have he he makes holes in the structure. So as as well as this sort of framing motif of the gate you even have the creation of little frames in the holes that he creates in mm. in the wood and i say whilst it's the framing the physical framing is very clear in the police scenes it's all still there in every other scene as well that the framing is still there in the in the woods in the um in the uh, what's it called in the gate scenes Mm. You mentioned earlier about the, the last fight feeling different. The last time you saw a fight feeling different. Mm. And now this is something that I can't hold my hand up and say is my idea, but I saw it on an online discussion when reading this. 
was the idea that because we're suddenly and we're getting into sort of Japanese class here you've got a woodcutter who's clearly lower class um, and clearly a little bit of a um, morally dubious character we say Mm. Uh, but feels shame in that he isn't like a bad person I think but he has some sort of element he comes from a different world he watching the fight between an infamous bandit and an upper class samurai his tendency through various reasons is to portray them as a bit more slapstick shall we say it's meant if you see the two fights back to back the one mm. described by the bandit is an honourable you know choreographed leaping off things fight yeah. Whereas the stale from the woodcutter feels much more like a kick bollock scramble of mm. a Barney. Um, and it doesn't have that same kind of elegant movie fight feel. Oh, and I see. The, the, the theory that I, heard, that I was reading about was that that's, that's a class situation where the lower class person is taking, trying, to, trying to take the upper people down a little notch, not feel so bad about himself, that he would describe the story, the fight in that way. Hmm. I see, it's interesting. I also wonder whether there was something about gender here, um, as there so often is in in many films. But um, th- there's an there's an interesting sequence in the um, in the woodcutter story right at the end when the you you get is it the truth from the wife? We don't know, but we have. Um, the wife make a big thing of the fact that she is a woman and naturally weak, um, mm. and then suddenly you have this. And naturally weak is is quoting the bandit, but suddenly you have the wife with a violent vocal response, sort of railing against them. And I wonder whether that this was to, to what extent this this was sort of Kurosawa sticking up for a a, a woman in in an perhaps fairly socially oppressed position in society in Japanese society I think it's interesting because you the but the, all the stories paint with the women in very different lot the women in very different lights mm. um, and I think those that that position says more about the people he uses that that, that to tell about the people so the bandit story the woman was a consensual partner Mm. Um, but that is, you know, the, the view of the band is he is this womanizing Lothario, um, and so why wouldn't they fall for him? Yeah. Uh, whereas the, the samurai feels aggrieved by that, um, and he feels that you know, he, he, his his trust of his wife that he wouldn't believe that she would go willingly. So even if she did go willingly, in his mind he wouldn't see it that way, mm. and he would see her as this sort of, you know almost pure um, character until she turns on him mm. um, so I think that, that they're using she not, not she sees the MacGuffin here because I don't think she is but there's an element of you see that character very differently through each one of the stories yeah um, I think that's an interesting thing certainly I was I was trying actually going back to this the the visual component of this film just how beautiful some of these shots are and some of and it, it speaks to how good Kurosawa is a, is a filmmaker is that he can just pause and have a beautiful shot that you can mm. look at. And I'm thinking of the moments with the woman alone in the glade and almost nothing happens for longer than a beat. 
and it's just it's it's the trees and her white dress against the background and actually thinking thinking back to it like you said it's it's she again is seen through something but still you have this it's almost sort of loving focus of the camera mm. even in i mean what's nowadays relatively speaking quite a short film he still finds time to just pause yeah i think i mean i think anyone who's been listening to the podcast for a while knows that most of my love of films comes from a visual place while we just got a lot of narrative here i am essentially a visual person when it comes to movies and i think that often people look at black and white films and they don't see visual impressiveness Mm. they don't see we're so used to condition to look at colour and see things like that without looking at and the framing the framing of Kurosawa is some of the best in the world um, I discussed it earlier with his panning shots but you're right he finds his time to make it beautiful mm. and that can be in an ordered way but I, the opening shot of the film is the, the, the rain falling on the gate and I love it I love that shot that wide panning shot of the whole gate with the rain I, just, I think it's so wonderfully shot mm. uh, I think you know that, that's one of the reasons why it's to the test of time I think that if film, I mean, this film came out what sixty-seven years ago. You know, uh, it, it's that's a film that stood the test of time, and I think the films don't stand the test of time if they haven't got something visual that's worth talking about. Hmm. Yeah. So before we wrap it up, Samar, I have I have two questions for you. Yes. Uh, one one's a short one, and one's a bit of a longer one. So I'll, I'll go short first. Right. What do you think the truth was? <laughs> or do you think it doesn't matter? Um, it is a short question requiring a long answer. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I think, to a large extent, I think it doesn't matter because the ends are much the same. And... We we haven't really gone into the idea of shame in Japanese culture and how um, sh- he couldn't live having seen his wife violated, and that's the the guiding principle behind what happens. But I think ultimately it doesn't really matter. I mean, she has betrayed him in some way, and. Mm. As as a result, she can no longer be a part of that relationship. He meet he has met a bandit. That bandit is a killer, and ultimately he was going to kill him. Um. So whether or not, yeah. How how implicated the wife is, how implicated the bandit is, seem seem to be rather moot points because we've got to the same place. I think ultimately, I don't think it matters. I agree. I I I think that, that say, it's one of those things where the journey is what matters. Mm. And I think I, I don't want to steal anyone's recommendation here, but this does remind me of a film called The Usual Suspects. No, you both Simon. Sam and I have loved and extolled in the past. But that film, just spoiler warning for the suspects, is entirely a lie, we think. Mm. There's no real, like, it's very hard to know in that film what's true and what isn't. But I don't think that matters. 
because it's about the journey. I think the same thing's true here. That what the actual truth is, I don't know, uh, but I don't think I care to know. I think that the the interest is in in, in the different versions. Hmm. Yes. You said you so have a sl- question. I do. Well, it, 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 in the, maybe the question's a bit shorter, but I thought it might be a longer answer. But maybe I'm wrong. Is what are your thoughts on the final scene involving the baby? Because uh-huh. it's been a bit, a bit diversive in 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 Kurosawa fandom over the years. So I'm intrigued to know what uh, your thoughts are. I think I was thinking about this, and I thought when I first saw it, why has Kurosawa put it there? I think that it is used as a device to show how flawed but ultimately good the woodcutter is and i think that's particularly important maybe okay maybe it doesn't maybe the truth of it doesn't matter but the fact that the woodcutter is essentially a good man who cares for others who get th- gets things wrong he steals occasionally that's i mean he, nobody is perfect, but I th- I think that's what the last scene does. It it serves to show you a man who is flawed, but on whom we have to rely. So I think, mm. I think I suppose ultimately, although it doesn't matter what the truth is, I think I think I would lean towards the woodcutter's version because I am predisposed to like the woodcutter because of the way he's portrayed at the end. What do you think? Oh, I like it. I, I think this is because one of the one of the tenets I have for Kurosawa is he's not afraid to be a bit of a a, a voice in his films and have an opinion on stuff. Mm. And it does feel like through the film we've lived some some squalor, shall we say? And even in Dragon Angel last week we lived through some squalor. It feels here that he's trying to say, you know what? Like, yeah, it's rough out there, and you go into the wilds, and bad things can happen, but people are good. And mm. society can be saved, and you yes. know that someone's abandoned the baby. Yes, but they've left them with a kimono to protect them and an amulet to protect them. And this man, who is clearly a bit of a sort of a, a a poor person, who is a bit of a thief, as you say, but he still has it in him to look at a, a baby and think, "Yeah, I'll look after that." Yeah, because no one else will. And yeah. he sees it in his in his heart, and the priest sees it in him. The priest sees it in him, and you know what? And I think that is. I think that's what he's doing, and I'm 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 I welcome films like that. I, I think film has a power to change and to teach, mm. and I I enjoy a director who isn't afraid to do that. I wonder whether I mean this is not to reopen discussion at all, and we probably need another podcast for this. But I wonder whether, in light of that, it would be interesting to go back and look at the film again and think, well. If that's what Kurosawa is saying about human nature, then maybe we need to look at what he said about these incidents more closely in d- different ways. Mm. I, I certainly think this is a film that, as someone who's seen it many times, lives up to and and rewards continued viewing. Right, Rob. Well, so, we- Sam. We should uh, we should do some recommendations. We should. Do you want to go first or shall I? The first of these, I feel a bit, I feel a bit embarrassed about about mentioning it because 
it, it feels a little bit too easy and also it feels it borderline racist to me to suggest a Chinese film when we talk about a Japanese director but I did think that moment when you see the samurai with the dagger um, sort of isolated in a, in a clearing about you think to commit harikiri I did think of a similar moment in a great uh, film of a play by I think it's David Huang I'll just look it up uh, it's the film of M. Butterfly mm-hmm. um, which is a I suppose a, a modern day reworking of Puccini um, and the the original narrative was updated to include references to a GI and it, it was about someone being um, forsaken by it, it's I suppose kind of like the story of Miss Saigon for those of you who know that um, but yeah it's a play by David Henry Huang his name um, sort of loosely based on a relationship between um, a westerner and a Chinese woman um, and it was that I suppose that visual moment that striking visual moment of seeing the samurai with a dagger and I thought of that and I suppose it's not there's not really a huge thematic connection particularly because it's Chinese rather than Japanese but I like the film and I just wanted to recommend it um, the second one is I suppose more innovative structurally and that's why I was thinking about it and you mentioned right up top about how this is now more commonplace wasn't really at the time in cinema and um, also it's one of the few films by this director that Rob will tolerate Um, and it, it, it is a good one it's also one of the few films by this actor that I will tolerate so it's, it's a perfect storm it is uh, Memento and yeah Guy Pearce I normally can't stand but in this absolutely fine um, Chris Nolan Rob normally can't stand but in this absolutely fine so uh, yeah I just thought this was a, a good time to mention Memento as an innovative structural entity in cinema I think it's always a good time to mention Memento as you say it is one of the few t- <laughs> Nolans that, that I do abide <laughs> so I've got two recommendations as is often are, are one, one is an actor and one is a a, a sort of a structural one I do want to add a preface here that uh, I, I am aware that we often do a lot more actors when we're doing movies but when we are dealing with uh, Japanese films from the 50s I think our exposure to the non Akira Kurosawa movies is going to be minimal um, so mm. if anyone out there wants to recommend films from these actors who we should be watching please let us know I'd love to know more but that I will hold up my hand and that is entirely my, my own cultural bias that I don't know much outside of the ones that are broken into the west that being mm. said, I do know some. Um, and one I want to recommend is a film from six years after this one that also happened to star the lady who played the, the wife in this, Makio Kayo, I believe, Machiko Kayo? Um, Kayo. I'm very bad at this. And she was in a film called Street of Shame and playing a character called Mickey. 
Street of Same was about prostitutes um, and the daily lives of those of those girls. In a similar theme to something like um, Drunken Angel and a very similar theme to The Dead Condemned, which we'll come to in a few weeks' time, um, it has that same kind of feeling of, of vignettes within a, a larger world. Uh, but she stars in it, and it is is very very good. If uh, if you haven't, if you want to check out some more more Japanese cinema, my more so we say uh, structural recommendation is one that I really never thought I'd be recommending on this podcast, but it <laughs> came up in in my thoughts when we were talking about this film, and I thought you know what I, I I'll mention that, and that is the two thousand and one film One Night at McCool's. Now I genuinely think right. Sam and I might have seen this together when we were teenagers. Um, if it wasn't you, it was our friend Richard, uh, and we went to this. And this essentially is the tale of a bartender who meets a girl called Jewel in his bar, um, and the tale of revenge and sex and murder that entails. But it is told from three perspectives: of the bartender, the cop who investigates and falls in love with her, and a sadomasochistic lawyer who also falls in love with her. And each story, Jewel is a very different character, each highlighting their own kind of prejudice and misogyny. And each character of, of the three of them comes across very differently. So John Goodman's um, the cop, and in his stories he is a heroic um, cop fighting the evil. In some of his stories he is a, a jobsworth, hard-nosed, dull detective. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's very camp and very silly, um, and it hasn't gone on to great acclaim, but it is fun, and it does have that interesting, enjoyable experience of seeing the same story told from a different point of view and getting to re-experience mm. moments differently a second time round. It's very much a product of the early 2000s, uh, but if you haven't seen it uh, and you want something good and fun for an evening that stars... I mean, it's, got good, it's got, you know, Liv Tyler, Matt Dillon, John Goodman, Paul Reiser. It's got a good... Uh, and Michael Douglas as a hitman. Worth seeing. So yeah, one might have a call with my slightly offbeat but uh, recommended film. Right, interesting combination there. <laughs> Swiftly moving on there from Sam. <laughs> yes. So guys, next week we're coming back with more on the um, Kurokawa and we're picking up with, in what many ways, Baby is most famous film, um, and that is Seven Samurai. Uh, it's one of what people may have already seen if they haven't seen these ones up to date. If you haven't seen it, then you would have seen something else that rips it off. There were so yes. many films based on Samurai. Anyway, carry on. And till then, guys, you can find us online at Pretty Podcast. And you find just me at life underscore academic. And you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. And we'll see you back here next week. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.